Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How do you explain Mr. Fury's presence in Moscow? Uh, alleged, alleged presence, madam. Slovakia rolls its eyes at me one more time. I'm going to put on the suit and carpet bomb it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I am David Chen, and today I'm here to discuss Secret Invasion Episodes 1 and 2, streaming right now on Disney+. Plus. Episode 1, Resurrection. Episode 2, Promises. Joining me for this episode, he is the co-host of Remap Radio and the author of Crossplay, a new substack that you can find at patrickklepik.substack.com. Patrick Klepik, welcome to Decoding TV. Thanks for having me back. I'm glad I've, I've passed the test to, to come back for a, a third try on this. I've done it! The, pre- the preview episode was definitely a test, and um, <laughs> y- you barely passed is what I would describe it as. So. Great, thank you. Oh, that's uh, my whole life. <laughs> joining us also, uh, he is the co-host of the Amazing Spider Talk podcast, uh, and frequently my partner in crime here on Decoding TV, Dan Gavazdan. Welcome back to the podcast. What you don't know, David, is that I've been secretly a scroll this whole time, and uh, and and Dan Gavostin is tied up in my closet. Uh, wow. And I've been, yeah, it's a whole thing. Yeah. Wow, shocking, shocking. Uh, I do want to acknowledge that Dan Gavostin was originally supposed to join us for our preview episode and also for this episode, but he came down with um, he, he was basically completely incapacitated, as far as I can tell. Right, Dan. Yeah, that that's about it. Yeah, that yeah. was when I was transferring memories from my, the old version of myself. <laughs> that was when he was taking your mind. Body. That's yes. when you were taking his mind, basically. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, but we're so glad to have Dan on because Dan obviously is an, is an expert not only in Spider-Man but in uh, Marvel Comics more generally. And I'm, I'm super thrilled to hear his perspective on uh, how the comics have handled Secret Invasion this episode. You can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. Find us on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, at decodingtv. Uh, and also, if you want to support this podcast and help to keep it going, we'd really appreciate it if you could become a paid member at decodingtv.com. Get ad-free episodes, early access to episodes. Uh, the folks at Decoding TV are basically who are able to keep this podcast going. So if you're a supporter, thank you so much. What we are going to do on today's episode of the podcast is we are going to cover Secret Invasion episodes one and two. Uh, and that's what we're going to be basically be doing all season. We're going to be covering one and two today, three and four in a couple weeks, five and six uh, a couple weeks after that. That's going to be the whole sequence of Secret Invasion here on Decoding TV. Um, so we're going to start by sharing our overall thoughts on the first two episodes and then we are going to dive into a detailed spoilery recap and then have some closing thoughts, and that'll be today's episode. Uh, we're also broadcasting live right now at uh, youtube.com slash decoding TV, so uh, people might be able to comment, and we might read your comment on the air. It should be a lot of fun. So uh, let's get into it. Before we talk about our overall thoughts, we got to talk about, very briefly, one of the controversies that has already come up about this show, uh, and I, I suspect it won't be the last one. 
about the show, which is it was revealed last week that this show uses AI in its opening title sequence. Um, and uh, Patrick Klepek, I am I am curious. You know, you cover uh, video games as an industry, and I think AI is obviously something that is. Uh, a real concern for many artists across multiple industries, not just movies and TV, but also video games. Um, now, we should say that uh, it wasn't just like they uh, they fed it into a machine. They typed in, create a opening title <laughs> sequence for Secret Invasion, and then it spit it out, and then they just used that. Um, this The opening title sequence for Secret Invasion was created by Method Studios. They've uh, They've done many opening title sequences. Uh, and so it was guided by humans. There was many artists that actually worked on the opening title sequence. So it wasn't like um, – uh, I, I wouldn't say it's like a, a particularly egregious use of AI, but it does come during uh, a writer strike, a possible actor strike where AI is a huge concern. Uh, Patrick, I'm just curious like what your take on it was when you heard about this. I don't know that this particular – use of it is like you said the most egregious example or the highest level concern that the writers are concerned about or just creators uh, writ large are concerned about like where is the you know what is the line between a new useful tool to do the work to allow us to do that work in different ways or more efficient ways uh to free up our own free time to free up our own creative time uh it really at the end of the day this struck me as like just read the room at the moment, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the, the, again, like the fact that a studio uses as a tool, I think there are healthy conversations to be had about our inevitable march towards AI being a tool. I think that genie is like out of the bottle. It is going to be integrated into workflows. It is not going to be something that we're running away from. It's going to be a part of our lives. And then it becomes a question of at what cost um, how is it integrated? Are there ethical ways of doing that? What are the the underlying data sets that are are, are informing that? I mean, today this comes along. Uh, this news comes alongside uh, in the video game world, like Steam, the most one of the most popular pa- platform to buy and play PC video games, uh, saying if you can't prove the data sets you're using for your AI uh, artwork, then we're not going to let you be on the platform, which is a pretty uh, you know, uh, specifics uh, shot across the bow in terms of how are we handling this? What are the ethical concerns? How can you prove what you're doing here? And so for me, yeah, and we should just be clear, right? B- basically, a lot of these AI programs are trained on copyrighted artwork without their permission of the rights holders. That's that's kind Correct. of what has happened. And so Steam is saying, if you can't prove that all the art that you trained it on is legit um, or that you had permission to use it, then it's going to be rejected. Is that right? Correct. It's one thing if you say as a studio, hey, we have fed it all of our art that we have made. We have paid those artists. We know the right situations. And we just wanted to see what the algorithm that we're working with came up with. Uh, That's one thing. And I think this seems like if you want to be most generous, it falls closer to that end of that uh, spectrum. But nonetheless, you know, I mean, we could talk about the credits themselves um, and and whether that was worth the journey. But it really does feel like, (laughs) hey, there's a writer strike going on. People are concerned about technology. Maybe don't give an interview where you're like, isn't this sick? Like, look at this cool <laughs> thing we did. Like, don't talk right. to Polygon about it. Just like yeah. put out a yeah. press release somewhere and, and just skirt it under the door. Yeah. Patrick is referring to the fact that the executive producer and director, Ali Salim, uh, 
talked in fairly glowing terms about using AI uh, to Polygon.com, which is a widely shared interview. Uh, Dan Kvazin, you are obviously really into comics and are very familiar with the comics community. I'm curious like, what your reaction was when you found out about the AI usage in the opening credits. I mean, as with anything, I just wanted more information. You yeah. know, uh, Patrick really leaned into a lot of it, but like, I, I don't... I don't. This is gonna make my rest of my opinion sound absolutely horrible. Maybe moving forward, but I, I really don't see a problem with the usage of this in the way that it has been later described. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. that description could be like a, a very like sanitized, like you know, how do we make this sound as acceptable as possible? But the way that they describe it is like, hey, we hired artists to produce images. And then used AI like a filter uh, to give it this like sort of scrambled, you know, AI look. And I was just remarking to my wife this morning because we were watching TV and there was an ad for like um, like like a feminist movement uh, and how to retrain AI. And all the images were AI images. And we were like, it's amazing how quickly this thing came into our lives just so shortly ago. And now we can all automatically spot like the look of AI imagery, Um, Mm -hmm. which is to say like this credit sequence might become very dated very quickly because like (laughs) that particular look of AI is very now, you know? Yeah, Um, yeah, totally. Totally. uh, So, but so maybe like regardless of the ethics, it's, it sounds like Patrick is making, I I agree completely with Patrick. It's bad from an optics perspective. Dan Gavazin, you're saying, it's bad because it's going to severely date what and I think they actually you know started working on this sequence quite a while ago you know like it's not like they just did it like in the last few months um, oh, well that's so, that's not yeah. my only complaint but, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, but one of one of yeah one of, yeah so. yeah I mean like I, I I'll go on the record and say I think the credit sequence is really cool looking like I, mm-hmm. I, I, I think I'm like one of the like lone voices of like oh this is really interesting like I enjoy mm-hmm. watching this like if I can put the ethics of it behind me, you know, like, like if in fact they hired artists and then ran that artwork through an AI filter or an AI program to come up with this look, then I think like, cool, that's like any other tool. I mean, honestly, I can open Photoshop today and they have AI integration now into Photoshop where I can show it a person's eye and it will create a whole human being around it or uh, you know, like, and, and I, as a, as a photo and film teacher myself, my students are going to be using these tools. So like, we need to like wrestle with what the responsible way to use these tools are. They're not going to go away. So like, if a company did the work of hiring artists to produce the work that then is being run through this, then I think that's about as like good of a case as we could ask for mm-hmm. from something like this. And, you know, I like I know that they're like hiding behind the thematic idea of this and like Yeah, so you know, so to be clear, they have justified it by saying, Oh, we wanted to create an opening title sequence where people felt like, Ooh, who actually made this? Like <laughs> what's this is so we feels yeah. so weird. Yeah. Like, isn't it nobody's maybe gonna it's... hit skip intro and just go past <laughs> this anyway, which is what I did after the first episode. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I'll admit I've watched it every time. I mean, I guess it's only two times now, but uh, you know. Uh, I, and I, and I skip a lot of uh, opening title sequences. Uh, I just find there's something like really like off putting about it in an interesting way, but, um, <laughs> uh, that's not the angle they took, right? Like I actually think <laughs> again, I was sort of reading the room where they said, 
this AI stuff is kind of messed up, y'all. And we thought that, like, like it, it was sort of pitching, like, we're, we don't know how we feel about this stuff. And we're actually expressing that. Th- you know what I mean? Like, there's a way of framing it that, may, like, maybe it's still laundering, like, a bad idea to, to start with. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think, like, the, the and I think what, what kind of came through in that Polygon interview was, and I think we're going to see this increasingly, is as this goes mainstream, and Dan, as you mentioned, it is just a tool like how much do you know about how the google algorithm works how much do we know about how the various tools in our lives that allow us to do things more efficiently actually function like we're not or, always necessarily or just cog- basic tools to create art i mean like sure. like like this stuff like it may not be this sophisticated but like we've been using like software based like like simple ai in art making you know all, all the time i mean like i can click a button in photoshop and it will automatically you know, like balance all of my, you know, colors and stuff in in the image. Now that's not the same as it like creating images, you know, that like remove an artist from it, but like based on what the company is saying, and and again, that might be a tall order to just accept what they're telling me, you know, like they're saying we hired artists. This was just a tool in our process. Now, when I watch the opening credits, like one of the images looks weirdly like you know the great like friedrich wanderer above the sea fog image uh or the sea of fog image that's like a classic 1800s painting and i'm like okay well maybe they sourced other things into this so like (laughs) i i I am like going at their word and i don't know how much i believe that word but if i just go based on what they're saying i'm like i don't know if i really have that big of a problem with it yeah, um, that's fair yeah. enough. Let me let, let me uh, let me tie it together and say I, I think we can say uh, bad luck to release it during this time. And to what Dan Gavaz is saying, I do think if they're if a company is gonna use it, at least in these early stages, they need to be a lot better about communicating how it was actually done, uh, or else they are going to reap some backlash as a result. Yeah, it's totally a justified backlash. And like the idea that like no artist could create this feeling is absurd. Like absolutely. absolutely. I I watch like one of my favorite movies of the past 20 years is Under the Skin, which feels like an alien filmed it, you know, and like that wasn't made with AI. You know, so, you know, incredible uh, film, incredible yeah, film yeah, by Jonathan. To Clay. my knowledge, at least. Yeah. yeah but yeah, yeah. yeah. God, I hope not. Don't ruin that movie for me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's get into the actual show itself. We've watched the first two episodes of Secret Invasion, uh, Resurrection and Promises. Uh, let's talk about what we thought about it. Um, so, Patrick, let's start with you. You know, uh, we, we had a preview episode. We talked about some of your expectations. Now that you've seen the first two episodes, what do you think? Uh, if I can summarize a text message that I sent uh, to you last night, it's I'm really glad we had the second episode <laughs> to, to watch of this show because I think uh, it makes sense that critics were given the first two episodes, even though the, the reviews of it were a little uh, lukewarm, uh, perhaps at best. But I think the second episode gives me a better glimpse into what I hope is the arc of the show, which is an exploration of old man Nick Fury combined with a legitimately old Samuel L. Jackson as an actor. And like, what does it mean to have embodied this character? What does it mean for this character to have carried this weight um, as the world has gone through this transition into superheroes and aliens and everything that (laughs) the earth also dealing with that thing from the Eternals that we're just not talking about that is like sitting in the ocean, the giant creature that <laughs> there, is there, is a, the there is a celestial hand <laughs> reaching out of the ocean. 
Don't worry about it. Don't, don't worry, worry about, about it. We're, let's not. The MCU's not worrying it. about it. Nick Fury's <laughs> not worrying about it. And nor is the audience. And and that at the end of the day is, I hope that's what this show is about. I think we've seen ample evidence from other Marvel television shows that it, they dangle that carrot. Like, oh, like if the show is about this, maybe, maybe there could be something really interesting here. And I'm hopeful that, especially in the second episode, we get like two really good conversations. Like there are two just sort of like set piece, let's talk moments. And there's a lot more just talking happening in, in the second, second episode uh, in general. And so like, that's where I don't know where this show is going to end up, but there were glimmers of something that could be really interesting and self-justify this series and, and why it's not a movie and why it's, it's, it hasn't, you know, a full hour each episode. I hope there is more of that going forward. I'm worried as Dan will probably explain to us going forward, the arc of like what is being built and like the sort of characters that might be the ultimate villains of this. I start to see the CGI like building in the background because ultimately what I would love for this to be is an exploration of Nick Fury at the end of the road and what is the the guilt of this person and the weight that they're carrying? Because I, I I would love six episodes exploring that, and hopefully I get enough of that in between all the other stuff that I, I can probably take or leave a little bit more. All right. Uh, so those are Patrick's thoughts on Secret Evasion episodes one and two. Dank of Austin, let's talk about your thoughts now. Let, let's take a little brief detour. Uh, what has been your opinion of Secret Invasion in the comics, Dank of Austin? Um, is it a is it an arc or a sequence that you particularly enjoy? And then uh, would love to hear your thoughts on the first two episodes. Sure. Well, um, Secret Invasion, the the comic, it's a comic event, you know. Um, so Marvel does these things now. That seems like they do it every couple of months, and they're much smaller. But like in the early two thousands. Uh, you know, they started doing these major events in their book. Like it would just be a title called Civil War or Secret Invasion. And basically every book in their line would like, you know, dovetail or intersect with this big ongoing thing that was shaking up the Marvel Universe. The one that really, I think, gained the most attention, um, you know, to really kick off this era of event led comics was Civil War, and obviously we saw that uh, as a movie. And Secret Invasion was kind of the follow-up to Civil War. Um, you had, uh, you know, uh, creators like Brian Michael Bendis, uh, who is now mostly famous for co-creating uh, Miles Morales, um, who was writing the Avengers and New Avengers uh, books at the time, and uh, he kind of kicked off this whole secret invasion thing by um, having a battle between the Avengers and some villains. And it turned out Electra dies in that comic and in her death, it's revealed that she's a scroll. And this kind of kicked off this idea of like, Hey, anybody could be a scroll, you know, like they're already here. They've already invaded the Marvel comics universe and that was really exciting and really had a lot of suspense built into it. Um, ultimately, uh, Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman, who made her, I guess, on-screen debut in Across the Spider-Verse in a kind of different variation on 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 herself. She was the queen of the Skrulls and ha- was like a major mem- like leader of the Avengers. And so you eventually found out that like they had really infiltrated all mm-hmm. levels of power and superheroes and villains 
in the Marvel Comics universe. Um, but that's probably not going to happen here because Jessica Drew rights probably belong to Sony at this point or something like that, right? Yeah, ab- yeah, they do. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, she's coming out with her own movie, I think, next year. Um, so uh, with a group of other spider women. But um, uh, I mean, th- there is there is an option, you know, like they seem to very, be very reluctant about like bringing in other superheroes into this, which I think removes some of the fun of uh secret invasion, but the comics were really exciting and they had that real kind of like, like anybody could be a scroll and the kind of excitement and nervousness about that. And then like, what did that mean? Like it was even more potent because what did that mean for the past X number of years of comics that you had been reading, you know, like, and it turned out that like Bendis had been seeding the spider woman deception for like three or four years prior to that reveal. Um, and so it was a really kind of exciting time to be reading comics. And it ultimately ended with like Norman Osborn killing the lead scroll, which then put him in charge of this group called hammer, which was like the opposite of shield. And from there, the thunderbolts came out and this is all stuff that they wow. are going to yeah. be exploring in the future of the MCU. Um, it, it's so interesting to hear you talk about it. Cause basically it's like, we're going to get some version of that minus all the Spider-Man stuff because all the right. Spider-Man stuff belongs <laughs> yeah, to Sony, yeah. right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so, that, that, uh, that Thunderbolts run is really, really awesome. You have like an right. unhinged Norman Osborn taking over the job of Nick Fury. So, um, so uh, it's, it's an exciting time in comics. Like the yeah. idea of scrolls was very like reinvigorating to, to multiple franchises. Uh, and so given all that, Dan Gavazin, what did you think of the first two episodes of Secret Invasion? Well, I actually think it's really like important to hold up like the feeling of those comics against these because I don't get any of that like feeling <laughs> of paranoia from this show. Like mm-hmm. I think if this show is operating at its best, like we should be questioning everybody like who's a scroll, but I also don't really know what that means. Like if someone turns out to be a scroll, like uh, I agree with Patrick. I like the second episode way more than the first episode. Like by the end of the first episode, I was just flat out bored and was like, oh my gosh, are we going to really be covering this in, in incremental detail? <laughs> like it, it really reminded me of like your and I discussions of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We were, we were just like, boy, what did we sign up for? You know? Well, I mean, um, first of all, first of all, we're only, we're only doing three episodes covering this whole show. Dick, yeah. So yeah. Like, yeah. No, so, I don't think that this is as dire of a cir- circumstance, <laughs> but uh, like there, there was support the coding TV over at there was a yeah yeah no but there was a moment in like episode one where like Nick Fury they're all like talking about like the Skrull invasion and he's literally eating like popcorn out of a bowl and I was like. Is this the level of stress that we're feeling at, at this? Like, well, don't forget, know. don't forget, Dan, that uh, you know Ben Mendelsohn's character says, "Hey, if these guys succeed, it's going to lead to the end of your your species." And then Nick Fury stands up, really yeah. abrupt, and he's very upset. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, don't undersell Nick Fury's emotional reactions in the show. Okay, I mean, but, like, even in the second episode, like, I really like the scene where like Talos tells him, like, "Hey, there's a." whatever we can get into he tells him the reality of the circumstances and nick fury's like response is basically like can you leave the room you know like 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 that like that's the level of like (laughs) hand uh, head in my hands like oh oh really it's so much worse than i thought get off the train (laughs) yeah yeah uh, i i guess like 
there's a lot of things that I'm like intrigued by in this show. Um, but it, 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 it oscillates so wildly. Like the show opens with a guy literally being hysterical about this and no one has like, has ever risen to any level of heartbeat to match that guy's like anxiety <laughs> uh, about this situation. And if like nobody except for this absolute lunatic is worried about this, I'm not particularly worried about it. And mm-hmm. like, like I enjoy every scene with Samuel L. Jackson, but I'm like, I'm like, are, is this a threat that I should be like, like, <laughs> We'll get, we can get into the details into the spoiler part of it, like, but like, it's really doing everything it can to not make me worry about the the, the stakes of of this show. Um, whereas with the comic, it was like, holy crap! Like, like people with superpowers are scrolls. Like, like, what does that mean? Like, they've infiltrated like a- every organization here, and like our heroes are turning on each other. And like, how long has this been going on? And I, I just I cannot. Maybe it's a problem with me, but I cannot like b- like ra- bring myself to really care about like this threat, which should be a secret invasion. Like it's in the title. Can I ask a question about the the scrolls and how they how they function in the comics, Dan? Sure. In, so they there is a line in these episodes that essentially sets up like, hey, like. Are you wondering why the Avengers aren't here? And I think they give like a decent line, like they're about like, hey, we don't we wouldn't want them to fr- be framed as a terrorist um, that would you know exaggerate the tensions uh, uh, between these world powers. And you take it or leave it as like, well, that line is enough for you. But like they do acknowledge like why they, they don't want to include those characters. But in the comments, do the scrolls when they inhabit, let's say, the Hulk or whoever, do they then are they able to inhabit those powers, or do they just look like Bruce Banner? Like, what is the extent? that their shape-shifting copying powers allows them to then invoke the powers of that superhero. Because in some ways that would sort of like set the scale of like what that threat would be if it's just, I look like Tony Stark. Or like, actually, I also can, you know, use his suits and <laughs> talk to, uh, <laughs> to his AI. It, it's, it's a mix of things. Like uh, their shape-shifting powers are f- in the comics are far more potent than they are in this show. Like here they just seem to be like, kind of like copycats. Whereas, like, in the comics, they, like, they're more like, well, I would say, like, Kamala Khan's powers, except that we haven't seen that in the MCU. But, like, they they can, like, change the size of parts of their bodies and punch hard. And they are kind of superhuman. But, um, and we can get into more details on this because it is hinted at in this show. Like, they have these group of scientists as part of the Skrulls that do DNA and gene editing that, like basically can turn their people into whatever superpower they're trying to replicate in, in some way. Mm. Um, and those are like a, an elite class of scroll. So, um, oh, you know, like their planning is not just like I showed up and decided that like I was going to look like spider woman today. It's like, no, I was a sleeper agent specifically designed to take over the role of, Spider Woman because my DNA has been altered mm. to match hers. Oh, okay, that yeah. makes okay, that makes more sense to me. Okay, all right, that that yeah. was not super clear to me. Because otherwise, like, you could kill that scroll, and then like another one could just take its place, and it's like right, whatever, right. you know. Yeah, yeah. and that would right. that would that would definitely add to the kind of paranoia feeling you would get from from because it's like not just like oh the T one thousand happened to imitate me today, but like they were they've been training for years to imitate me. That's like a more upsetting right. idea, right? Yeah, so, exactly, yeah, yeah. and and. 
you know, I'll hold off more thoughts for spoilers because like there's a line in the second episode that made me go like, like, this doesn't seem like a problem at all. But okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, I I think uh, I, I kind of agree with everything you folks have said. Um, it's, uh, it's a show where uh, it's exciting to see all these amazing actors together. Apparently, Amelia Clark has, has had a much better time on this show than Game of Thrones. And if so, I'm so happy for her because apparently she wasn't treated very well on that show. And so, like, hey, to see Amelia Clark again on, on, the, on the TV screen... That's wonderful. Olivia Coleman and Samuel Jackson bouncing off each other. Uh, Don Cheadle and Samuel Jackson interacting, which I don't think is something that's ever happened in the course of the MCU prior to now. Um, so it's just fun seeing these actors bounce off each other. As for the plot, I'm going to put this out there. I think it is... Uh, when I watched the first episode, I was like, oh, wow, I'm really glad I kind of rewatched Captain Marvel to brush up for this. Then I watched the second episode, and I'm like, "Oh wow, that knowledge is basically useless from what I from what I had learned." Uh, and we could talk. Why, why was it structured this way? I cannot, well, we, yeah. for the life of me, figure it out. Yeah. Well, so we'll talk about we'll talk about it. But overall, I think it's it, it's there's enough interesting things here that I'm intrigued to continue going. Uh, but yeah, the first episode was pretty rough, and uh, but the second episode really introduces some some interesting ideas, and I agree, like. How is this character? How is this uh, show gonna gonna treat the character Dick Fury? Is it gonna try to wrap up that character in some interesting way? Uh, I'm I'm open to the possibilities. So those are my overall thoughts on Secret Invasion episodes one and two. Those are all of our overall thoughts on the first two episodes of Secret Invasion. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I am now going to give you a plot summary of all the stuff that's happened in the first two episodes. In episode one, entitled Resurrection. So we're, we're now spoiling the first two episodes. Everett Ross, last seen being arrested in Wakanda Forever, meets with a CIA agent who claims to have uncovered a global plot involving rogue scrolls setting up global attacks. By the way, that agent, uh, the actor who plays Beric Dondarrion, I believe, in, in Game of Thrones. Um, so, hmm. yeah. Ross kills the agent before being pursued and dying, only to be revealed as a scroll himself in front of Talos and Agent Maria Hill. We're introduced to uh, the show via the opening credits before Hill beckons Nick Fury back to Earth. Nick Fury has been in, a, in space since the blip. Talos meets with Fury, and we learn that uh, Talos' wife, Soren, has died off screen. Also, Talos has been displaced as the leader of the Skrulls on Earth, and this radical faction is now led by someone named Gravik, trying to eliminate humans by hiding among them and sowing chaos through terrorist attacks, hoping to generate a war between the U.S. and Russia. Fury looks for help from an old friend at MI6, Sonia Fallsworth, played by Olivia Coleman, but is rebuffed because he is seen as too weak. 
We're then introduced to Gravix Resistance, who's kidnapping humans, assuming their identity, and also downloading their memories. Fury, Talos, and Hill learn of a dirty bomb exchange. They attempt to intercept, only to learn that the person from the Resistance at the exchange is Talos' daughter, Gaia, played by Amelia Clark, who learns from Talos that her own mother was killed by the Rebels. She leaves, and we transition to a scene between Fury and Hill, who also acknowledges that maybe Fury has lost a step, and Fury admits to having a crisis of faith. Gaia attempts to move back the next, I'm sorry, attempts to move back the next attack and fails before revealing the plans to Talos. A big action scene ensues where they not only fail to stop the attack, but Gravik disguises Fury, shoots, and appears to kill Maria Hill. So that's what happens in the first episode of the show. Uh, we later learned that 2,000 people died in that attack, which I thought was a really <laughs> high number. <laughs> The that scale like, of that was not really conveyed. In the, and then it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rhodes says, like, yeah, and by the time they get rid of the rubble, that number's probably going to be a lot higher. It's like, was it? Because that <laughs> looked like, that looked like it was like dozen, a few hundred. I'm trying to downplay these deaths, but I don't know. What rubble? <laughs> <laughs> there, was like, there was like maybe like 200 people tops. So it was like, when they said do that, that was like a legit shocking moment for me. I was like, whoa. Were they the all thing- hiding? Like, where were they just stuffed yeah. into things? They, like- <laughs> they didn't have enough time to use the AI to produce enough crowd members so they could have conveyed the 2,000 people. It was all, the budget was all in the credits. Yeah, indeed, indeed. All right, so let's talk about episode two, Promises, in a flashback to 1997. So, okay, let me pause here actually for a moment and say... Uh, this show does not like when I was watching episode one, I was like, this show is doing nothing to help you. Like when we, Patrick, you and I did the preview episode. I was like, mm-hmm. I-, I need to explain to listeners what's going on with Captain Marvel <laughs> and what, what the deal was or else people aren't going to understand what's going on. And so then, and I said during the preview episode, well, Patrick, I'm sure when we watch the first episode, they're going to be some extended previously mm-hmm. on here's what happened with the scrolls. By the way, people have since told me that you're supposed to watch Marvel Visions before you watch the show, and that explains no. everything no. that's going on. No, no. I'm glad those <laughs> exist. It's cool they exist. That's not what normal people do. People <laughs> click episode one and they watch it. Thank you, thank you, Patrick. I, I concur. So anyway, uh, I was expecting like there'd be a previously on or whatever in in the first episode, and they didn't do it. And so I was like, oh wow, so they're really just airdropping you into this thing. And then episode two begins, and that's when they do the previously on. And so there's baffling, a whole... baffling. <laughs> <laughs> so so they do a previously on. They cut to 1995, and then in a flashback to 1997, two years after the events of Captain Marvel, so they give you a summary of what happened with Captain Marvel. Then separately, there's a flashback to 1997, two years after the events of Captain Marvel. Fury and Talos speak with a group of scrolls who's, who've arrived on Earth, and Fury makes a pitch: help him protect Earth. And he'll help them find a home. In the crowd is a reluctant Gravik whose parents died while escaping their war against the Kree. In the present, Fury and Talos are fleeing the scene of the attack while on a train car. Talos explains that while Fury has been checked out during the blip and afterwards, he sent out a call to the rest of the scrolls, and more than a million of them are now hidden on Earth. As tensions between the U.S. and Russia rise, Gravik heads to the Scroll Council, made up of disguised world politicians and other dignitaries, and makes his pitch. Fury screwed us over. Now the planet is ours. The council largely agrees and appoints him general of the war effort. We're given a glimpse of a mysterious tech project before cutting to James Rhodes, playing politician and trying to play down the appearances of Fury and Hill to other world leaders at the uh, terrorist attack. Before he meets up with Fury and after a tense exchange over their attempts as black men to acquire power, Rhodes fires Fury. 
The rest of the episode involves Sonia Fallsworth torturing Intel from a scroll, who reveals Gravik is working on a device to make them more powerful. The episode concludes with Fury visiting a woman at a home we haven't seen, and it turns out it's his wife, and she's a scroll. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I think it was, uh, this is the woman from the opening scene of the, uh, of the episode, right? Mm, like, I believe so, yeah. How did you know it was the same person, by the way? I didn't. Patrick, I read Patrick. about it. <laughs> okay. I, was, I, I was, didn't like, make that connection <laughs> at all until I was Googling it and someone said like, oh, and she's in the opening of the second episode. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But mm, I, that didn't land with yeah, me long enough to make that connection. Patrick wrote the the recap that I read. And so it, when he wrote down, and she's a scroll, I was like, oh, wow, Patrick, nice, nice recognition skills, man. <laughs> um, but no, Actually, apparently. I wrote that. Oh, you wrote that? Yeah. Oh, nice. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Okay. Well, then, uh, how did you know then, Dan? I didn't know that she was the same person from the beginning of the episode. It's just in this final scene, you see a scrawl transform into this woman. Oh, I see. Okay. I didn't, I, I must have missed that, like, one section where the, that happened. So I guess Patrick and I both missed it. So anyway, whatever the case, Nick Fury, Nick Fury is married to a scroll. That's, that's the ultimate. Yep. Okay. We all, we are, it doesn't matter that some of us got there late to the party. We're all there now. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, so I want to start by saying that, uh, you know, Dan, you, you, you said the structure of this, these episodes are baffling. I want to start by completely agreeing because this show in large part undoes the ending events of Captain Marvel. So if you recall what happens in Captain Marvel, which few do, but it's not a bad, it's not a bad movie, but like, I don't think a lot of people remember it. Right. At the end of the movie, Captain Carol Danvers is like, Hey, you scrolls, you're never going to be safe here on earth. I got to find you a home. And literally they head off into space on a spaceship. That is the end of Captain Marvel. Right. What? Really? Am I am I make, am I making that no, up? No, I'm just I'm I'm no, baffled. No, right. I'm baffled that yeah. can be true given where the right. show is. Right. They even they even showed it in the recap. Be... Yeah, they showed it in the recap. They showed they it in the show, recap. They showed him flying off into space. They showed him the flying off into space. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. So then, so the, okay. So Carol Danvers is, and um, Nick Fury have promised we're going to find you guys a home, and uh, they apparently have done a shit job over the course of the last. <laughs> few yeah. decades they haven't done it they haven't done jack for these people um but is that enough reason for them to infiltrate the highest levels of our government and kill everyone <laughs> no. i don't think so i don't think no. so so i don't really so, buy that, that council okay, 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 okay yeah yeah so so that that is the problem that this show began with which is why are the scrolls so why are you mad bro why are the scrolls so mad at everyone <laughs> Right. Well, I, because, I think the thing that connect disconnected me is the the number of a million scrolls are on Earth. That's, hold on, hold on. That's, let me let me get yeah. let, me, let me just finish, let me finish my spiel, yeah. and then I want to <laughs> I want to hear your indignation as well. But yeah, yeah. So okay, so so the show has a problem, right? Which is Nick Fury and Carol Danvers kind of made this. I would say soft promise. We're gonna find you a home. They obviously didn't succeed, and all of a sudden the scrolls are really pissed. Is that enough of a reason for the scrolls to be pissed? That would make them very unsympathetic if like Nick Fury was like, I'll find you home, and he didn't, and now you're gonna destroy our species? That's like kind of a kind of a disproportionate re- reaction. So the show's solution to that, from my perspective, is uh guess what? We're gonna undo the ending of Captain Marvel, we're gonna bring all the scrolls back, and we're gonna say Nick Fury is gonna ask them to help them ma- like help us maintain the peace. And th- that way basically it's like the scrolls 
had their part of the bargain that they lived up to. And then we didn't live up to our end of the bargain of finding them a new home. And that's kind of, that's kind of how I feel the movie solves the problem of why the scrolls want to annihilate humanity. And is it a reasonable reason for them to do so? Is that, does that make sense? Am I, am I, does that make sense? Dang Vazen? Is that like, does that track with you or am I making things up? Uh, that tracks with me and like i'm willing to buy a lot of that you know like where did <laughs> where did shield get all of this technology well they probably got it from scrolls right like mm-hmm. there's a way to kind of like suggest like scrolls have been a bigger influence in mankind's uh longevity than we knew and it suggests like hey mankind is destroying the environment so like they're going to be eradicated on their own doing anyway so we're just speeding up the timeline like if you're a genocidal species and you're okay with that then fair enough you know like like i could see you (laughs) making that justification my my problem is that it's they say it's a million scrolls are on earth that's one in every seven eight thousand people on the planet you know and nobody seems to have had a problem with that thus far like like it's not like they were like maybe they're they're feeling oppressed because they don't get to walk around with their green skin all the time although a lot of these skulls don't scrolls don't really seem that bothered by looking like humans if it avoids being in the makeup chair for eight hours but like <laughs> I, I i just um i I don't understand, like, if it's that large of a scale, where the problem is. And Nick Fury, there's a, an interesting line where he's like, look, we can't even get along as human beings, much less with another species. And it's like, okay, but, like, they've probably been here for several decades already. You're married to one. Like, you know, and I'm sure he knows he's married to one. So, like, like clearly it's working out okay i hope so i hope that reveal at the end of the episode wasn't for both of us nick fury and for the audience yeah yeah it's it's a similar it's a similar situation to uh the eternals you know how like the eternals have been on earth for like millennia but but then they could only uh intervene in human affairs when it came to deviance if you recall yeah right so similar thing with the scrolls they've been on earth for however long since 1997 and uh, they can only interfere when it comes to blah, whatever, something else we might learn. I mean, like, I get it if they were like, hey, a terrorist faction of the Skrulls are here and they want, you know, whatever, you know, like, uh, I, I, I buy that, especially if it was kept at a lower scale. Like, hey, just give us all this irradiated zone of Russia and leave us alone and we'll be fine. And like, maybe the president is like, they have access to nuclear weapons. We can't let that. And then it can become this whole like Israel parrot, you know, like, like, you know, metaphor or whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, there's an interesting route to go there, but no, it's like, no, we want to take over the whole planet, you know, like <laughs> eh, just take a chill pill. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's always been kind of the biggest issue is first of all, what was Nick Fury and Carol Danvers doing the last 30 years? You know, like, the, the the problem is when you create someone as powerful as Carol Danvers, you need to invent reasons for her not to be around to then basically solve every problem. And she the was trying out they, different haircuts. That's what they, she was the, doing. The, yeah. the solution like they came up. It's like the cell phone equivalent in like modern uh, thrillers. Like right. we just need to. Why it's out of battery? I don't know. Like, yeah, it's out of battery. Right. So so. But then the thing they invented was. She's off helping the scrolls find their homeworld, which apparently she's been doing for twenty to thirty years and has 
made it's no thorough. progress. It's thorough. It's you know you got to make an entire <laughs> book and the pros and the cons and can you breathe <laughs> here? You know, it's an exhaustive process. Yeah, uh, and and so that, that's a very awkward thing to get around. And uh, but I, I was bummed that like one of the big things about Captain Marvel is hey the the green people that look kind of. Uh, uh, unappealing to you and they're shapeshifty you know like captain marvel mm-hmm. sets those people up as, as the villain and then halfway through you find out actually um they're not they're they're actually the good guys it's the kree who are the good looking kree people who are bad um and that was a fun inversion in captain marvel that's now been completely undone by this show because there's a bunch of evil Scrolls, you know, uh, and so the scrolls are actually bad, uh, but not all scrolls are bad. So, can we do can we do a poll of the scrolls? Like, where we, we got a million, right? Like, is like what is the size of this resistance movement? Is like, and that's like that's kind of the difficulty when he's putting his head yeah. in his hands over there being a million scrolls. Like, yeah, okay, but it seems like are like ninety nine percent of them chill, and then it's just one one <laughs> percent. Like, I don't know what this represents, and also the fact that Nick Fury can't seem to wrap his head around why anyone would be upset, like. At no point in these two episodes does he acknowledge, man, I fucked up. Didn't find that home. I wonder if anyone's got a problem with that. Like, I assume that will be like part of a confrontation later where he, where he is like confronted with that. But it seems like very obvious to the viewer because the show is hitting you over the head with this about the whole planet thing. And Nick Fury is just oblivious to it in a way that doesn't really track with, you know, this master spy character that is aware of everything. It's like, yeah, but you made that promise in the room, bro. I saw the scene. <laughs> and and I think Talos's like whole point is really well received. He's like, look, you were gone for five years. You blipped out of existence. How was I to know you would come back? You know? And like if half of all of humanity disappeared and then suddenly a million scrolls show up, like we got plenty of resources. I, you know, like, like, I, I, like the infrastructure is pretty well established. Like, like that seems pretty reasonable. Well, presume, to me. Presumably yeah. half of the scrolls disappeared to Dagvos. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, we know that there's a million mm. over that. Yeah. But, and, and they probably wouldn't have shown up back on earth because we have seen that the blip deposits you wherever you left space time previously. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a that, you know that's a weird thing too. It's like if the blip deposits you where you left, but like the Earth has moved since then. So does it? it, it that's not you think about it. Okay, stop, yeah. stop, stop, stop. That's not that's not <laughs> I mean, that, that's a, okay. like a potentially interesting wrinkle. Is like okay, let's say you know, yeah, so you have a million scrolls that have arrived. People are gone during the blip. You could just yeah, those people are gone. But like, if nobody noticed that they were blipped, in theory, a scroll could have just inhabited that yeah. person and that like some of that does lay down some interesting possible like storyline potential that, that it doesn't really seem the show is going to gesture in that direction but like a show that was like set during that era of like fury being gone like scrolls like like it, it, inhabiting the planet or like trying to find their way during the blip period like it could have been potentially interesting but it seems like that i, I honestly kind of thought that's what they were going to do like the minute i found out about this show and the blips existence like that to me seemed like the natural like conclusion was like you know suddenly you have what was that arnold schwarzenegger movie where he like wakes up and there's someone else living his life you know like uh, that that would be the uh, the the equivalent i'm forgetting the name of the movie anyway um, the, the sixth day is that what you're referring the to? Sixth the day. One? That's what I'm referring to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. um, 
Yeah, so you, I think you get you were saying like there might have been another version where this movie happens during the the blip, which or is the minute five- people start coming back from the blip because you come back from the blip and suddenly like there's another Joe living with your wife, you know, like <laughs> like wait yeah. a minute, I'm Joe, uh, yeah. you know that that yeah. whole that rich drama. Yeah, let's talk about the blip a little bit, Patrick Klepek. I think you had some um, you have some opinions on how the MCU has handled the blip so far, right? Yeah, I mean. Uh, it's sort of uh, the, the moment we just had where like, ah, I don't think about it too much. I think that has sort of been part of the problem Marvel has had post Endgame, where there is such like occasionally we get moments where yes, like someone is, we see someone dropped back in after they were blipped out and then they came back and like, it's, it's really interesting. Or like some of the characters have acknowledged the trauma of, of that era when people were gone, whether they were left behind or whether they didn't exist, but because there's so many logical holes to the whole blip and like how would society function what were airplane like all that stuff i still think you can gloss over most of that and still mine what it would be like to have been gone and like when you return what is it like i know that the the original script for like wakanda forever was supposed to deal with t'challa having been gone the passage of time and i would have loved to have seen that movie spend a lot of its time wrestling with what does it mean to have been gone for this period of time and to like not have been around for, for his son. And it just feels like there's a lot of the, these shows and movies picking and choosing like a dramatic moment to acknowledge the blip and then go, right. So we got to get back to that other thing though, because I don't want to talk about that era because it's a little too odd. And like, I was, that's why I'm hoping this show, if it's going to center this grounded non-superhero character and they were probably having some issues pre blip, but the being gone coming back, really exposes maybe a lot of those those issues and, and the underlying effects. I, I'm hoping it's going to keep tapping into that. Like the conversation with Hill, the conversation with, like I hope that it's an exploration of the trauma of that event in relation to uh, Fury's uh, age more generally. And I just wish the, the, the series had spent more of this phase, the MCU had spent more of this time in these movies instead of just blazing past all of the blip and just onto new adventures had centered more of that era, which would have allowed to like slow the storytelling down, tell some more grounded t- sorts of stories. And uh, I just, yeah, it just seems like such an interesting era of this storytelling that largely has just sort of been, I mean, you know, blipped past, so, so to speak. Dan Gvozin, I think you have some thoughts on this, right? Well, I actually agree uh, with a lot of that. And I, I wonder how much COVID uh, played into th- this response, whether or not you like, because there's a thematic parallel there for sure. You know, like mm-hmm. the, the idea of like society being completely altered for a number of years. I wonder if they maybe wanted to steer away from depicting trauma on that level um, as much as it might have a thematic resonance. Um it's it's funny because during COVID I had one of the lead editors of uh, Marvel on my podcast and asked him like, are you planning on addressing COVID in the pages of the Marvel comics? And he was like, we're going to try to avoid it because we just don't think people want to pick up a comic uh, about COVID, you know? Um, and it's like, okay, I can understand that even though I think it's a missed opportunity. I, 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 I right, think and, and, they, and the blip has similar, has similar implications for people's lives where right, yeah. um, people have missed five years of, of other people, their loved ones' lives. I think the closest really poignancy I have really gotten to anything like that is 
when Ant Man goes and sees his daughter all grown up after the blip, after he comes back from the mm-hmm. blip. Yeah, like, that's a very or not not even from the blip. Um, he's in the quantum realm, so he didn't get blipped away. He was in the quantum realm. Um, yeah, yeah, but, but th- th- that's, I think that scene in Endgame is really potent. You know, of him yeah, running absolutely. through the the memorial and all that stuff. Yeah, but uh, a a thing like the blip, just like COVID in real life, is messy. Like it's it's yeah. really confusing and weird, and there's all kinds of weird and challenging and conflicting emotions you might have. Hey, I'm really happy that my husband is back, but also I married this other dude. So are we like a thruple now? You know, like there's all kinds <laughs> of things that you have to deal with that like um, that the, that the MCU has thus far generally not tackled. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a tough thing to balance. I mean, I, I remember you had, um, I, I think it was on like uh, culturally culturally relevant. You had Brian Rowan on, uh, a, a critic friend of ours, and uh, he like took it to the ultimate extreme. You know, like like as as he tends to do, uh, which which is to say like, you know, like all of the really gross and and messed up details of that. Like, I don't know how much I want to see that, but you're right. A li- like Patrick is right. Like, I, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Like, I think the closest we got to seeing really, truly like the real ramifications of this is in something like Falcon and the Winter Soldier, where you've got this refugee crisis and they've created this whole new council, the Global Repatriation Council. And there's this terrorist group, the Flag Smashers that are trying to like break down all borders like like i thought all of that was actually really interesting in a very flawed show um and you're right i would like to see more of that stuff in 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 these co- uh, in these uh shows all right um let's talk about maria hill who dies probably at the end of episode one um <laughs> kind kind of a weird unceremonious death i feel like the show and or the MCU didn't do a particularly good job of making us care about this character. And then to then kill her in this fashion felt um, pretty uh, weak, weak sauce. Uh, Decider.com published this piece called Marvel Studios has a killing women problem uh, that I thought was apt. Uh, Basically talking about how a lot of the MCU has killed a lot of female characters in, in order to drive drama. Um, and this feels like yet another example. And um, I have to say, it's kind of disappointing. It feels like unne- somewhat unnecessary. Like you could you could argue that Nick Fury needs it to drive his actions, but I don't know. Uh, Dan Gavazin, obviously, fridging is a very common comics phenomenon. What do you think of how? Do you think the name applies in for this show in a negative way? I I think it does. Um, Maria Hill is a really great character in the comics and a really interesting and complicated character. And I just don't think Kobe Smulders as uh, Maria Hill had anything to do like that. That character was was never given an opportunity to really stand out. I mean, maybe she'll come back and have interesting things to do. You could certainly do that. Um, You know, in the comics, she's largely a replacement for Nick Fury. And she's much even more hard line than him. And and it's an interesting character that was introduced around the same time as Secret Invasion in the comics. But I do think the word fridging applies to her here. And if if listeners don't know what that term means, um, there's this whole trope of women in refrigerators in comics that was coined by writer Gail Simone. Uh, there's an issue of Green Lantern where uh, the character Kyle Rayner returns to his apartment to find that his girlfriend has been murdered 
and stuffed in a refrigerator and you see her body parts kind of coming out of it. And it's kind of become the textbook example of like how women are easily killed in comics and other medium in order to advance the uh, plot or uh, the emotions for the male character Um, in a very like, I mean, you couldn't really get colder, uh, pardon the pun, than a woman in a refrigerator. Um, and so, like, here, like, at first I thought, okay, Maria Hill might have this death. It might, you know, like, I, I didn't like it initially. And then in the second episode, it got worse when, like, they they have a scene that specifically, like, frames it as, a like, a, a trauma for Nick Fury. Right. And for him, a way for him to evolve as a character. And it's like, well, you just completed the cycle, which is to say, like, this character only died just so... Um, you know, you can put Nick Fury through trauma, and uh, the same thing just happened a couple weeks ago with Kamala Khan, who was killed off in the comics just to move Peter Parker's character forward. And it's just like it's just exhausting, and you'd think they'd know better, and and yet they keep redoing this cycle of fridging in in these things. So anyway. it's also like, hey, wasn't the fate of humanity a sufficient enough? Uh, motivation yeah. for Nick Fury, you know, like, and then it's like, no, he now it's per- like they were going to exterminate humans, but now it's personal, um, <laughs> kind of kind of a deal, you know. It is, it is bizarre because, like, other than that one moment, you don't really feel like Fury is like all that motivated by the death of Maria Hill. Like, like he kind of like mourns her there on the sidewalk, and then doesn't really bring it up until someone else brings it up to him. You know, (laughs) Daniel, Daniel Falconer in the chat says, I really thought they were going to have Maria Hill take over the MCU. Uh, like, uh, the, the Nick Fury spook role with Jackson getting older, no idea what they were thinking by killing her. Um, yeah, it's really strange because like, she's a great character in the comics and it's, you set it up right there. I mean, like, again, she could come back, but like, uh, it does seem if this is the end of her, it's like, you had it right there. Why did you throw it away? I... <laughs> well, maybe she's not actually dead. Yeah. But uh, I doubt it. I mean, I, I think uh, Colby Smulders has like given interviews where she's like, hey, I think she's dead. Um, so, I mean, yeah, she seems pretty I, dead. Yeah. yeah. It's listed yeah. as special guest star, which uh, that is usually an indication that uh, <laughs> they, they, they might not be back. And if they brought her back, it would really, it would undercut whatever they were attempting to do here. I mean, I, I'm in complete agreement that I don't think it works. It is, it is terrible for the character. It's not proper motivation for, for Fury, but, he, but I don't know that bringing her back necessarily like writes those wrongs or makes me feel better because that's, they would, whenever that happened would be later in the show. And it's like, all right, so you wasted what is supposed to be in theory, a part of the benefit of having an hour long or 30 minute format episodic to explore this universe, which is you spend time with these characters talking and explaining their feelings, giving broader context and characterization to what are largely like action figures whacking each other in, in the movies, um, uh, even when they're down at their, at their best. And so it's like, what? So she, if she comes back because they sp- spill some super scroll serum on her gravestone by accident, because he fumbles it in his hand, like that's not going to feel great. And it's, it's just, a, that's it's, exactly it's really how a- it happened in the comics. <laughs> I'd believe I'd believe you, but it's it, it should have been an uh, a, I don't have necessarily an acting showcase, but an opportunity for these characters to explain why do they care? Like that scene that happens in the bar between the two of them. There's nothing in the movies leading up. If you were just 
a movie watcher. Like Maria Hill just exists largely on the sidelines to do things that Nick Fury says. And then this, the, in, in theory, the function of Secret Invasion as a television show is, okay, but it's like there's so much stuff that was happening off screen that you don't understand. Right, like it's right. stuff that you know in the comics and we're going to fill it in here because we have to fill time. And I mean that in a, in a, in a positive way, in a generous way. Like we're going to fill it with characters talking and then maybe when you revisit those old movies, like, oh, like this makes this feel like it has more weight because I understand the history of these characters and they give it one scene and then shooter. And then I will not be shocked. You know, we've only seen the first two episodes. I've not seen anything beyond this. If we don't hear Hill's name again for the rest of this show, I will not be at all surprised. Maybe we'll get one moment where he like Fury is holding up a gun to Gravik and says like, and this is for Maria. You know what I mean? Like maybe we get something awful like that, but I don't, I don't. I, I bet that's sense. gonna. I bet literally that's how that's gonna end. I think they're definitely gonna stand over her tombstone in the final episode. Like, yeah, uh, that mm. to me is like like that's textbook. Um, but but to your point, like I I feel that way not just about her, but like about like sword and saber in this whole thing. Like mm-hmm. we're told that like Nick Fury's been gone all this time. We saw it in the post credit sequence of Far From Home. If you hung around for that. Um, and like, there was a clever thing with it looking like he's on the beach and then it's revealed he's in a spaceship, but like none of that world has been established either. Like there's apparently a giant super weapon in space that Nick Fury's hanging out in that we've not seen anything of like, why not open the show showing like a, a detached Nick Fury up there and actually establish a world that I imagine we're going to be spending time with in the Marvels, but like, here even that is flimsy like i I don't have any read on like what nick fury has been up to in any meaningful way Um, yeah that's weird and i think patrick said it well which is that part of the purpose of a show like this should be to fill in those gaps but the the show's not doing that it's not we we get allusions to the fact that nick fury has been away from earth and that he's very unhappy and he's very like disillusioned but that's all they are they're illusions we don't see any of that or I don't know that it's explored in any meaningful way, although uh, towards the end of this episode, uh, end of episode two, we do get hints that it may be explored, right? Nick Fury has a wife. Uh, Dan, is this a, like, what's the deal with Nick Fury's wife in the comics and does it play out like this? Do you know? No, that's a complete show invention. But again, an opportunity, like, let's say, for example, like, we don't know, like, why the Skrulls are so upset, you know, not really, like, but let's say, like, Gravik. I'm, I'm writing this off the top of my head, but let's say Gravik. Well, hold, like, hold on. We, we do know why. That, that's what I, my whole spiel was like, we do know why the scrolls are upset in the show, at least. Well, well, right? yes, yes. But like, but it, not on like a, like a person to person level. Like, it's like, hey, we want our planet, blah, blah, blah. Well, but, like, also they, they did what Nick Fury asked, which is well, infiltrate. Well, like, yeah, the, yeah, 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 yes. Go, but like yeah. my, my point was like, they seemingly can't just live on earth, right? Like there's a million of them there. They seem to be getting along just fine, like, but something has sparked them. One, you know. one of them is even the prime minister of England, I think. is Right. Yeah, they seem to be, like, thriving. <laughs> they seem to be thriving. But, like, let's say, for example, we have a scene where Gravik, like, he's married to, to a, a human. And he comes home and he decides, you know what? This is it. I'm going to reveal that I'm an alien to my wife. And she's, like, not having it. You know, like, like, I will not have an alien in my household. No, but uh, like maybe then I could feel some personal connection like, oh, like they really can't 
uh, exist on Earth. Like there is going to be discrimination. They will never be able to be their real selves here. You know, like there, there's an opportunity with this extended runtime mm-hmm. to like sell us that on an emotional level rather than just like, well, the deal went sour. You know, like <laughs> uh, but also, right, what was right. that deal? Like, is there, you know, they, they set up in that flashback scene that, you know, this character, like they lost their parents, but they're like really strong and like they could be an asset. Well, what did Fury do with those assets? Like that is something I'm wondering if the show will explore is like, okay, right. it probably wasn't just like throw a bunch of Skittles in the air, like different colors of the scroll rainbow and like go become different humans and like integrate into society. He said he wanted to defend Earth. Like what was Fury asking them yeah, to do? It, so it, it's a, unclear. A- he says, quote, while you work to keep, you know, you work to keep my home safe. Carol and I will find you a new one. That's those are the words he uses. So, presumably doing some kind of security work of some kind. It's unclear, but it's unclear. I, mean, I agree. With you, you you could maybe like no prize it and say like, well, they they did take over for Fury, right? Like we saw in Far From Home that like mm, yeah. they were ostensibly mm-hmm. doing the job of Shield uh, at some point. De- de- decades later. Decades later. Right? Yes, um, yeah. <laughs> which is when the events of Far From Home happened. Uh, Patrick Klepek, I think you had some thoughts on how the show handles like these extended scenes of dialogue. We got like, we have multiple extended scenes of dialogue in these first two episodes. And how do you, how, you know, particularly a uh, pretty nice juicy scene between uh, Nick Fury and, and Rhodey in the second episode that uh, I actually really appreciate it. And you, know, we're seeing two brilliant actors bounce off each other um, in a potentially thematically rich way. But yeah, what, what do you think about the dialogue? Uh, what are your thoughts on, on how this, this, series handles dialogue well I like those sequences in particular um felt like the richest use of the extended runtime of these television shows like having these two actors who i think you pointed out earlier dave like have i don't think we've had them in a room together if they have it's not been a one-on-one discussion between the two of them in which it's not like looking up at a global map and talking about the threat on the on the horizon it's like two like grounded human characters speaking to each other on a very real level in which like there is subtext in, in, in like their actors, their place in media, like it is then integrated into their characters. And it was just, I'm not trying to like over, like overstate the gravity of that scene or that it's like an Oscar worthy performance from either, but for this world that I don't think has enough of these quieter moments. And it's like the amount of weight, that these two actors can bring to what otherwise could just be an exposition dump that is explaining like Rhodes, like you're in government, like, you know, about these scrolls. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not like, in theory, I've known about them through the entire run of like the MCU, but just, I don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. And I don't care. Like, I don't (laughs) care that like that stuff doesn't bother me because that you're going to always get those logical inconsistencies when you're doing yeah. like storytelling like this. And as it gets bigger and you're going to try and explain backstory stuff, it's fine. I don't, I don't care about that, but I, I liked that. It wasn't just an ex like a pretext for exposition. It was a, it was a pretext for these characters to say thing about themselves. And like, other than like the stunt casting that happens so often in these showcase blockbuster increasingly, or like usually comic movies, like, like let these, let these fuckers act. And like, this is an, is an opportunity for them to do that and added a lot of weight to a show that really needs it. Like it, cause it's clear. I don't, you know, again, lots of things can happen in the ensuing episodes, but I don't know that like the a level plotting, like whatever is 
happening in the show is necessarily going to be the thing that brings me to any sort of satisfying resolution. But if you were to tell me like, hey, there's going to be a bunch of these beats over and over throughout, because you've got like a Ben Mendelsohn, I can hear that man read a cookbook and I'm, I'm going to be enthralled. There's just something about the way anytime he enters a scene, like he is able to just infuse it with an energy that like, sure, man, like whatever. And like, that's all of those actors. And I just hope we get more opportunities where the show recognizes what it's playing with and allows them to kind of play in that sandbox a little more. No disagreement here. No disagreement here. Dan Kavosan, I think you had some thoughts on, to change topic a little bit, you had some thoughts on like the politics of the show and how it's going to handle it, right, Dan? Well, can, can I have a quick like, like up and down uh, uh, at question for you guys? Rhodey, Skrull or not a Skrull? Because <laughs> <sighs> this has been the debate. People watch that performance and were like, he's really tough on on uh, Nick Fury. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought it was in character, but I, I could also see, I don't know, I just want to engage with this because that's the question the show kind of wants us to ask. And uh, I, I kind of want to see where you guys are landing right now. It would, I'll oh, go ahead, Dan. No, I I don't know that the show gives you enough information to even guess at it without it being just like a wild guess. You know, well, that's like, why I'm at. What I'm asking I, I, for. I guess. I guess. Yeah. I guess the, the right as you said, he is really harsh on Nick Fury, and 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 that's probably uncharacteristic for someone who, um, who has saved the planet on multiple occasions. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> So you you wouldn't but, treat someone who saved the planet on multiple occasions this way is what you're saying, David. I would at the very least give them health care for their, uh, you know, sick sibling. That's okay. I'm referencing uh, <laughs> Transformers uh, Rise of the Beast now. But uh, no, the um, uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't. But also like uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character, Nick Fury, really put Rhodey in a difficult position, you know, with that council that he was at um, when you show up. At a terrorist attack where I'm going to say no fewer than fifteen thousand people have been killed, um, you know, like you're uh, you're in a you're you're putting him in a tough spot. So I, I think it, I don't I th- I say no scroll, no scroll. All right, Patrick. Um, high level, I think it would be like a, a huge bummer if like the showcase <laughs> moment between two black actors in a in a in a in a, in a franchise that is broadly like white dudes turns out. It was actually a green alien under there the whole time while they talked about like where they fit in as like black men in society of power. That would suck, but would not wouldn't put it past the MCU <laughs> to be that like tone deaf. Um, I I do I think you're right. They're like one thing they're gonna like do at the end of this is right like they they're sidestepping a Tony Stark or like I guess you didn't a character that was alive suddenly being a scroll. If they do that, I guess. I'd be curious if that's, that's something you're saving for like more of a spectacle, like a secret wars or something like that, where they might get more cameo heavy and, and and playing with the audience. But it does seem like it would be odd if by the end of secret invasion, there wasn't a, Oh my God, like this whole time it's been one of them. I, I don't know that Rhodes like rises to that level. And if you're going to do that, I wonder if it has to be a higher level character in the MCU uh, that would actually make the audience rethink, Oh shit. Like what, what's been happening in those movies all the way along. Of course, I don't imagine that the show has been doing what you mentioned the comics were doing, which is like 
hey, we do I kind of know it's this thing we're going to be doing in a couple of years. Let's lay a couple of seeds like explaining that. I don't know that the MCU has necessarily done that homework. And so maybe it feels a little cheap. And I wonder if the line from uh, from Fury is broadly sidestepping like, hey, you're not just going to suddenly find out that like Captain America was a was a scroll that whole time, really undercutting a lot of the emotional arc of, of those those films. But I, I think it's on the table. I don't think it's true for Rhodes. And I'd be disappointed if that's the character they chose, especially given some of the context of this episode. I got to say, I, I am I'm a little irritated that when you find out someone is a scroll, it doesn't explain how long they've been that. Um, so you have, in, you in the you case have of, like rings, like a bark, like, oh, you, you've been <laughs> aging. <laughs> when, when you cut the scrolls open, it should show you how long they've been that person. Okay. But no, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, like um, with Agent Ross. At the beginning of the episode, right? At the beginning of the first episode. It's like, yeah, no, okay, it is has, has yeah. Ross always been a scroll? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, was, is there still another Agent Ross out there that's operating? What is what is the deal? Like, I, and the show rarely explains that. My, um, my suspicion so. is that Ross was replaced at the end of uh, Wakanda Forever. That, like, the police <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that arrested him were scrolls. Um, and that was their uh, option to inter- infiltrate. I'm going to go on the record and say I think Rhodey, yes, is a scroll. I think Whoa. it's problematic. I think it's problematic for all the reasons Patrick pointed out. Um, but I do think they've got to make some major player a scroll to sell this threat. And we've already seen Nick Fury as scroll in Far From Home. So, like, I don't think mm-hmm. that they're going to repeat that again. Um, and also because they got Samuel L. Jackson doing, I think, his final appearance here. Whereas, like, Rhodey is going to show up in Armor Wars, I think, is still happening. So, right. like, he's going to get his own show. So I think they have the opportunity to mess with us a little bit here and maybe make us more interested in the character by saying there's something about him going on behind the scenes that we didn't see. Um I think it does make this scene problematic, but I do think like there's no other superhero in this show other than Rhodey. So like they have to do it with this guy. Uh, I'm going to be very disappointed when Rhodey is revealed as a scroll and they don't explain how long he's been a scroll. I'm going to put that. I'm going to put that. That that might be the final reveal of the show. Rhodey was a scroll. It's like, for the events of the show or like for the fa- past five right. movies or whatever. Okay. Anyway, all the way um, since Iron Man two, he's yeah, like, yeah. When, <laughs> when, when they changed the actor, it was very clearly. Oh a God. Yeah, yeah. It was, when, when <laughs> Terrence, Terrence Howard was a human. And then they just was a scroll version. How did no one notice for, this? It was so weird. It's so weird that no one noticed. Um, uh, let me just say, Dan, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and also I think the head of NATO or whatever you know, yes, like yeah, um, as well as uh, <laughs> as well as uh, the uh, the kind of Alex Jones type person in this universe. Yeah. Um, they're all part of the Scroll Council, and they're all scrolls. Uh, so I, I'm just gonna say, I think that's already pretty powerful, Dan Dan Boston. Um, although to put that like. It's like Alex Jones, the head, or the you know MCU Alex Jones, head of NATO and UK, you know Prime Minister of UK. I don't think those are exactly all equal in power. I'm just going to put that out. You know? like, it's and how are those assigned? Do they, they pull like, like cards? Like, all right, hey, you need you need to go like start yelling at people about tap water. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Over the next twenty and also years, you need people, to infiltrate. Yeah, 
you're a lizard person, which makes it kind of like a fun gimmick. So like, have at it, buddy. Like, get out there. All right. Uh, so, Dangwazen, uh, we're we're winding down here. We only have a few minutes left, yeah, but I'm curious yeah. if you wanted to talk a little bit about the politics of the of the show. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this show definitely wants to engage in like uh, thematically with like modern politics in the world that we exist in. I was reading an interview with Samuel L. Jackson that said like that's what like he liked about the project was that it could be a little more politically minded than some of the other stuff that he's been working with. But like at the same time, I I have to ask myself like. This show is specifically about a group of refugees infiltrating a population, even becoming our families, our wives, etc., and ultimately not being worthy of our trust because they could turn on us at any moment. And it sounds an awful lot like the Alex Jones, you know, uh, propaganda speak that we experience today uh, in discussions about like refugees and immigrants and uh, like whether America should be a melting pot, et cetera. Like, uh, do we think that this show is going to ultimately wrestle with that thematic, very conservative thematic idea of like, don't trust a- anyone that's not like American or human or whatever. Um, or like, don't trust refugees because they might just try to take your land from you. They're coming for our jobs. Um, you know, uh, like, or is it just like, I can't get it anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That was, that was for a, that was for a human. How how (laughs) dare they? Um, you know, uh, do we think the show is going to say something about it? Is it just using this kind of language and imagery and ideas to stoke our own inherent paranoia and nationalism, or is it just trying to have a good time? Don't think about that. Like, eh, it's a little mess too messy for us. Like we'll just, you know, dip our toes in, but don't worry about it. Patrick, what do you think would be satisfying to you when it comes to this, this plot line, like, or, or how, how it resolves? Like, do you, do you expect to get any hard hitting political commentary from secret invasion? Of any kind? <laughs> uh, no, I ex- I expect us to arrive at the spot that we're in now, which is, wow, this seems like some troubling framing, especially because part of the trick of Captain Marvel was like, they're the bad, you know, as you pointed out, they're like, they're the bad guys. Oh, no, they're sympathetic. And then here it's like, nah, they're shitty. Now they're bad. Like, they're actually <laughs> some of them, bad. Actually, some of them some are, of that, at least. Some of them. And like, it, it's just a bunch like, of they, them. A bunch of them. Yes. Yeah. And, like, and, and some and some I expect are good people. You know, like, like, <laughs> well, well, okay. So we do we do learn that Gravix compound has five hundred scrolls, right? So, um, you know, like not all, ma- yeah. Ma- I, do, I just... but but now he's like manager of the scroll council, and like of the one million scrolls, how many people are actually loyal to the scroll council? Right. Like, yeah. Hashtag not we have all scrolls. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. It's, absolutely. Well, and, it's, and it's just like, it's the, the cleaner and simpler you can make it, like when you're working with more like bigger metaphors and cleaner metaphors, I think sh- movies like this are going to be in a in a safer place. And, you know, you know, uh, Danny, you were talking earlier about some of the framing that they were setting up for a kind of post blip and, and, uh, and Falcon uh, and the winter soldier like that. I think similarly dicey territory where it's like, Ooh, like if you like really play with like what you're talking about here, like there could be like something interesting. And like that show ends up with like Falcon being like, what if like giving a big speech, like what if we just like got along y'all like be better. And it's like, okay, that's where I expect these, types of stories to go and 
it's, I just don't think they fit really within. There's like few uh, 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 writers, directors I trust, like Black Panther. Like, great. You want to go bite off something big? Maybe it's messy and it doesn't work out, and Wakanda Forever is a mess for all sorts of legitimate uh, uh, reasons. Um, but like, I trust, I trust him to like wade into that toward that territory. But like, there are very few sort of uh, creatives that I would expect to get that same level of trust. And I, I expect here we're going to end up with, I don't know that it's going to be like a conservative, like far right framing of like the border that we're going to, to feel at the end of it. But it's, I don't know that it's going to engage with those themes enough that it feels like it was worth like doing this at all. There's probably a better way you could have set up all of this in a way that was a little simpler and cleaner and doesn't necessarily have to pull from stuff that could be easily framed by those on the right as like, well, look, even Marvel thinks that, uh, like these people are bad and it's, it's, it's very understandable. We'd end up in that place because it is tricky terrain and like, maybe don't do that in your secret invasion television show. <laughs> All right. Well, those are a bunch of assorted thoughts in the first two episodes. You can tell there's some, some decent material, but also, uh, some troubling material, like stuff that makes us apprehensive that they're going to handle this particularly well. Uh, but I'm looking forward to finding out with you fellas, whether or not that's going to happen. So uh, let's wrap things up for today. If you want to support this podcast and help to keep it going long into the future, become a paid member at decodingtv.com. Get early access to episodes and ad-free episodes. And also be sure to email us. Let us know what you thought of the first two episodes at decodingtv at gmail.com. We may read your email on the air next time. Find us on YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram at decodingtv. And I want to thank my co-host for today. Patrick Klepek is the co-host of Remap Radio and the writer of Crossplay. A new Substack you can find at patrickklepek.substack.com. Patrick, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And also Dan Gavazin is the co-host of the Amazing Spider Talk podcast. Be sure to check us out discussing The Bear Season 2 over at Decoding TV. Podcast.decodingtv.com and YouTube.com says Decoding TV. Dan Gavazin, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me here. And uh, next time I appear, I'll be played by Don Cheadle. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with our discussion, recap, review, analysis of the next two episodes of Secret Invasion. Until then, stay safe out there, folks. Goodbye.